Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. I'm delighted to be introducing the 2020 long-term capital market assumptions today. And here to join me in this 24th edition of our long-term capital market assumptions work are Dr. David Kelly, uh, Anthony Worley, Michael Hood, and Pulkit Sharma. And over the next 30 to 40 minutes, we'd like to take you through the conclusions and the thoughts around our long-term capital market assumptions work. And after that, we'll be opening up to Q&A. So let's start with what the capital market assumptions are. As mentioned, this is our 24th edition. We cover now more than 50 asset classes in 16 currencies and over 20 different economies. The idea behind the long-term capital market assumptions is to take a look at the world over the next 10 to 15 years. What are the fair expected returns and interactions between different asset classes? And what are the themes that will profoundly affect the investing environment over the next 10 to 15 years? To begin to talk about some of that, let's look at some of the major takeaways. Something we've noticed over the past year is, of course, that we've seen not only trade disputes, but we've also seen a sharp turnaround in monetary policy. That's opening questions about where we sit within the business cycle. Could it extend further from here? And certainly something which is keeping the cycle going is relatively contained inflation. This is also beneficial to investors who are looking for real returns to be compounded over the longer term. In a slower growth environment, rates are likely to stay low for quite some time. But Dr. Kelly, in a moment, is going to explore why it is that low interest rates may not actually be as stimulative as we've been led to believe. Stocks in this environment, interestingly, are holding up relatively well. But for those who are concerned about where we sit cyclically, do remember that in absolute terms, the outlook for equities is still pegged back by the length of this expansion. Alternative assets look great at the moment in relative terms once again. Stable alpha and great exposure to secular themes such as technology. But again, it's a liquidity trade-off, which we'll explore in a little while. China's had a bad rap over the past 12 months, and certainly some of the trade dispute has really brought to bear, uh, brought into focus some of the issues that are going to face China as they expand their economy further. It will be at a slower pace, but opening up the asset markets within China is key to their ongoing development. There's likely to be something which opens up all opportunities for investors around the globe. One thing that we have to deal with in a low-rate world, of course, is that bonds are simply not providing the income into portfolios they once were. Yes, they still provide ballast and safe haven, but it may be the case that we need to look elsewhere the income streams that bonds have hitherto provided. Real assets, therefore, become much more interesting to portfolio allocators than maybe they have if you look at them purely as a bricks and mortar investment. And that leads us to the notion that this is a time we need to rethink and reconfigure how we build our portfolios. The building blocks have subtly changed, but it's important to understand how better to put them together, and how to do so in a way in which we can still harvest the asset returns across markets. Before handing over to Dr. Kelly, just a quick look at where we sit today. The purple line on the chart represents the stock bond frontier. You can see that compared with the green line from last year, it's some way steeper than it was, because bond returns have come down, given the much lower starting point of yield. This creates a challenge for investors, but as you can see, there are still relative opportunities, given the number of assets clustered around this line. But do remember, you look at where we were 11 years ago, the grey line towards the top, it is a sobering reminder that we are coming on to 11 years into a cycle. It will be more challenging. And to take us through that, let me pass it over to Dr. Kelly to talk through economics and the implications of monetary policy. Th thanks, John, and uh, thank you all for, for joining us this morning. Um, so, first of all, just uh, in broad brush terms, what do we see returns as being like over the next uh, 10 to 15 years? And what we did in this chart here is just look at this relative to what we've seen uh, in recent history. Um, there are a few things that I'd, I'd just point out from this chart. Uh, the first thing is, if you look over on the left, you can see that 
U.S. equity returns going forward are likely to be a lot lower than they have been over the last 25 years. Um, we have to recognize that this has been a period of um, extraordinary gains in, in, in equity markets, not likely to be replicated um, in any event, given, given our economic outlook. But also, there's another problem. You know, we, we show in the, in the purple bar uh, what the sort of secular trend would give us in terms of equity returns. But then at the bottom, we show the drawdown simply from the fact that we start from somewhat above average P.E. ratios. And this is really pervasive throughout asset classes. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, it's kind of like if you ask for directions in Dublin, people normally say, well, I wouldn't start from here. And the truth is that a lot of these asset classes, you really wouldn't want to start from here in terms of valuation. And that is a drag on long-term returns. The other thing that I think is very important here is we're very, you know, people tend to focus very much on the year ahead, 2020 vision and, and so forth. The whole point of long-term capital market assumptions is really to look beyond that, look beyond the cycle and see what, what long-term themes should play out. I think one of the, the most obvious examples of this is while there is a great deal of uncertainty about the global picture over the next year, what we clearly show on this page is that in the long run, even though in the last 25 years the U.S. has beaten uh, global markets or global equity markets in the past, going forward um, the U.S. actually should um, lag behind and there will be uh, an opportunity um, in relative terms in having that global diversification. Um, Another thing that we want we want to do, you know, our forecast for long-term capital market assumptions, one of the things we start with is we, instead of just diving into the forecast, we really think about some of the themes that are playing out. What is it that's driving our philosophy with regard to these forecasts? And, and one of the theme papers that we uh, authored this, uh, this year, and this is the 24th year of our, our long-term capital market assumptions, was entitled The Failure of Monetary Stimulus. And, and the, broad the, the broad idea is this. Any medicine, any, um, if taken in the wrong dose, can turn to poison. And what we recognize, particularly among developed country central banks, is, is that rates are so low that further declines in interest rates not only might not help uh, expand their economies or expand aggregate demand, but it could actually hurt. And so we show in this table here, which is a, a, in the book, is um, not just, uh, we try to break it down into the six key effects. Uh, which we think that mo that monetary easing has in terms of stimulating the economy. Uh, there's a price effect uh, where if you cut interest rates, it makes capital spending cheaper. There's a wealth effect. It can boost uh, asset prices. There's a currency effect. You might, it might lower your currency. But there are negatives too. Um, if you cut interest rates, you cut interest income. If you cut interest rates, you can affect confidence. People get say, why are you cutting interest rates? Should we be scared? Should we hold back? If you cut interest rates, you give people the impression that maybe you'll get further interest rate cuts down the road, so maybe you hold off borrowing. And when we look at it, not just across regions, but across time and across the levels of interest rates, uh, we believe that in some cases, such as in the U.S. right now, cutting interest rates from very low levels at this point may not actually be stimulus to the economy at all. But that observation really feeds into part of our overall long-term view. Because that's our view, but it's not necessarily the view of central banks. Uh, when, I think that if you look at the comments of central bankers in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, they still sort of see monetary stimulus as, or monetary easing as really the only game in town um, from, from their perspective in terms of what they can do. And so we expect that we will get slow growth over the, the long haul, but we'll also get um, monetary easing, which could lead to not extra inflation and economic growth, but really facilitate lower interest rates. So if you look at our economic projections, there's not much change from last year. We do highlight where we've taken uh, our estimates down. The United States is pretty much the same, We're looking at 1.8% in the long run. That's very much what the Federal Reserve most um, independent observers think is a reasonable number. The U.S. does better than Europe. You know, U.S. 1.8, Europe 1.2, Japan 0.6. So the U.S. is sort of the, uh, among the best in the bunch across developed countries. But also we think in the long run, uh, as usual, the emerging market outlook is better for economic growth. We have pulled down Chinese forecasts, um, partly because of the maturing of the Chinese economy, reaching uh, middle income status. Uh, but overall, the, we've re reduced modestly um, these economic forecasts and also a slight reduction um, in inflation overall. So how does this fixing, if this fit into our fixed income view? Well, if you've got slower economic growth, if you've got lower inflation, 
Um, the chances are central bankers will take longer to normalize rates. So the, we, we recognize that over some, at some stage, over the next 10 to 15 years, we will get back to a sort of a new normal in interest rates, which is lower than it has been historically. But it'll take a few years uh, to, to move into that. And so we, we illustrate that a, a, a in the chart you're seeing right now. Um, more broadly, in terms of fixed income returns, uh, we look at different uh, fixed income uh, asset classes, both in the United States and, and around the world. Um, and again, the, the outlook is it's kind of you, you wouldn't start, want to start from here. We, we do have low real yields, um, low inflation. That's getting you low nominal returns on fixed income. And then the, the final thing I want to say about, about fixed income and then turn over to, to Tony to talk about equities is um, if you look at what's going on in fixed income, the problem is in many cases just how low rates are right now because we do expect some normalization. And that plays, you know, it, it cuts both ways in terms of, uh, of forecasts. Obviously, for fixed income investors, it would be better to have higher rates over the long run to get some sort of yield, some sort of real yield. The problem is that getting from here to there involves some normalization. And across all of these asset classes, and particularly the government bond space, normalization is going to be a painful process, which is going to reduce the return to fixed income investors. So um, overall, it's slow economic growth as a baseline forecast. It's low returns on fixed income. But uh, this is all pretty gloomy stuff. So uh, I thought I would turn it over to Tony to talk a little bit about technology and perhaps some of the upside in equities. Tony? OK, thank you. So Dr. Kelly's given us the outlook for growth and fixed income rather modest by historical standards. But there is an upside case. And that upside case revolves around the fact that we could be at the early stages of a productivity transformation catalyzed by e-commerce. You can see on the slide here that e-commerce growth rates have been quite substantial. We projected at roughly 7 or 8% over the last several years. But we've done a study, uh, and as a result of that study, a theme paper that says that we're grossly underestimating how quickly this transformation is taking place. If you just look at retail sales, whether you look at valuation or valuation of transactions or the number of transactions, it's 13 to 16 percent of the retail industry versus the census data says it's only 8 percent. So again, by looking at a broader definition using the proprietary data we have, we see a much more rapid transformation take place. The corporate implications are very clear on the right-hand side there in the chart. You can see that the higher e-commerce score, or the higher e-commerce intensity, the better that the revenue growth rates are. But that's not just confirmed the growth rates. It's higher ROEs. It's better efficiency of the capital structure. It's higher margins. And so the implications across all of uh, corporate America or corporations generally is quite, quite clear. The e-commerce transformation is quite good for profitability uh, and returns generally. Of course, there's going to be winners and losers, as you can see in the case of utilities and energy. I'm not quite sure where their transformation will take place, although uh, battery storage might also make uh, technology uh, have an increase to, uh, on productivity of the energy sector as well. So what we do believe very strongly is as a result of this study that our economic growth rates our fixed income equilibrium rates are all validated by the fact that we see a productivity uptick out in the forecast time period. And it also validates the fact uh, that we um, uh, take a positive bias, if you will, in terms of the longer term trajectory of the global economy, but particularly the U.S. economy. Let's take a look at equity assumptions. So the equity assumptions really have four key themes. Number one is we've increased estimates almost across the board one exception being the case of Europe, and that's mostly because of the cyclical starting point. Valuations have not kept pace with earnings generally over the last year, and so we have a little bit less uh, of a valuation decrement to be made year over year. But on average, we see relatively modest returns. One of the bright spots, at least for U.S.-based investors, is that in all regions, in almost all countries, there's a material uptick or uh, wind at your back, if you will, in terms of the dollar decline. That substantial dollar decline, uh, again, should benefit U.S. investors quite substantially, the one exception uh, being China. In, in the case of the emerging markets, uh, we have a very notable 9.2%, uh, 9.1% uh, in local currency for China, 
overall, 9.2% in U.S. terms, 8.7% overall. And we remain structurally positive on the outlook for the emerging markets. We do think that there's more productivity ahead. We think that uh, technology in the emerging markets should catch up to their domestic or their uh, developed market counterparts. There is still uh, demographic uh, changes for the positive going on. Uh, and overall, again, we believe that this is a, a segment that even though we expect a 3% premium over the developed markets, there's probably some upside depending upon whether you're talking about individual countries. And I would cite India as the best case in point. In dollar terms, 11.7%, the highest within the emerging markets, and I might add the highest within all of the capital markets assumptions. In the case of the U.S., we believe that even though we have a valuation decrement forecast over the time frame we're dealing with, we still believe that that valuation premium is a sound call. Higher ROEs, better margin expectations, more productivity, the sectoral differences for the U.S. versus the rest of the world says that that valuation premium should give us a structurally better outlook for the United States than most of the developed markets. But on the developed markets, our biggest increase is in the case of Japan. And that really reflects the fact that margins have come down quite a bit over the last year. But we're also optimistic on governance changes, driving higher ROEs and higher returns to shareholders. So we've laid out the case very briefly for the equity outlook. Again, returns are increased for the most part, but particularly in dollar terms. The emerging markets have a meaningful premium, and there's a few outstanding uh, numbers like India at 11.7%, at least in dollar terms. So let's take a look uh, at the particulars. Again, rather modest returns in uh, developed market space, much better returns in emerging market space. We see valuation, small valuation decrements this year, which is, again, is one of the main reasons why we have a boost up overall in our expectations uh, year over year. Let's turn to financial alternatives. And with that base case already in hand in terms of what the public market return is going to be, let's just briefly review what our methodology is. And it starts with the fact that what is the prime risk being taken by financial alternative strategies, private equity and hedge funds? What is the beta where most of the returns are going to be generated? And once we've derived that core beta return, we use the long-term capital markets assumptions return estimates for the beta as our core building block. We then take a look at what is the trend line of alpha? And that trend line of alpha has been dipping down for a long period of time. But that trend line of alpha is simply derived by looking at the difference between the private equity composite and the derived beta. Uh, and that has, again, has been an, a, a long, steep uh, downward move, but has stabilized in the last couple of years. And we believe it will stabilize going forward. We're certainly going to make adjustments depending upon the current environment and the outlook for, uh, for uh, changes in the, in the industry. But for the most part, this is the methodology. Basic core beta return, we believe, drives an overwhelming percentage of all the return in the space. So in the case of private equity, we've increased the numbers of private equity primarily to reflect the fact that our core beta return estimations have gone up. In fact, our alpha estimations remain unchanged at roughly two to two and a quarter percent. So despite the fact that there's a wall of cash moving into the space, and despite the fact that there's fairly elevated purchase price multiples, we think very much as we articulated in the e-commerce study, that there's more opportunities for the cash to be deployed at an increasing alpha potential. So there's a balance here. We call it two sides of the alpha coin. There's a balance here between lots of cash to invest, fairly expensive prices, particularly in segments like cyber and software. But we think that can be balanced against the fact there are many new opportunities. And those new opportunities are just really beginning to run apace. I might also add that the uh, regional uh, allocations within private equities have changed quite substantially over time. Our composite number for private equity is roughly 55% U.S., 25% Europe, and roughly 20% in Asia x Japan. Uh, and so in looking at the upgrade that we had this year, think about the upgrades that we've made to Asia x Japan uh, and in the U.S. in particular. 
One very small change that we've made is a little bit anomalous. We've actually increased small cap median return above a mid cap, and that reflects the fact that the cheapest part of the market remains small cap, always has been. But as the cash flow and the cycle continues over the long term, uh, we believe that will probably be a valuation catch up there, hence a little better return in small cap versus uh, large cap. Turning to hedge funds, um, our, our basic uh, equal weighted assumption suggests that there will be a much better up capture versus stock and bonds for an equal weighted hedge fund portfolio than we've seen over the last 10 years. The basic premise for our optimism is that in an environment where fundamentals derive securities prices rather than the risk on risk off uh, central bank-led, trade war-led type of issues, as we normalize the environment and fundamentals become much more important, we believe that hedge funds will do better, particularly versus a 60-40, or I should say a stock-bond combination. But there is one exception, and that's macro. The size of assets in the space, the competition, the uh, illiquidity of the market versus the asset size all play against the uh, basically CTA-dominated macro space and should drive down returns from 375 last year. Our estimate this year, our projection this year, is 330. So financial alternatives, again, are heavily driven by our core beta assumptions, primarily equity. Uh, and uh, that holds true for both for private equity and for hedge funds. But the outlook, again, we think is um, a positive one in that we should see a 2% plus premium or alpha versus the public markets. While it's low versus historical standards, it's certainly meaningful for those who have a return hurdle that's above the 6 or 7% uh, that most of our equity returns are going to make. So with that uh, uh, conversation, uh, let me turn it over to uh, Michael Hood. Thank you, Tony. Hello, everyone. One of the themes that runs through this year's assumptions concerns China uh, and what we're terming the next phase in its growth. The spectacular success that China's enjoyed over the last 20 years or so has brought it to a milestone in its development. Uh, per capita income has now reached 10,000 US dollars. That's a level at which many emerging economies have experienced pretty significant growth slowdowns in the past, so-called middle income trap. Now, in our forecast, we expect China mostly to escape that phenomenon. We think it'll continue its journey to higher income status over the course of the next 15 years or so. Uh, and in that sense, as we look at the chart on the left of this slide, we think China will look more like Korea and Taiwan, the famous success stories, uh, than many other uh, EM economies. Having said that, uh, we are, as David mentioned earlier, expecting the gradual deceleration in Chinese growth to continue. And we're revising down our GDP forecast for China this year to 4.4% uh, from 5% previously. The world is just a little bit less friendly place uh, with global trade volumes having leveled off uh, for export-oriented EM economies uh, than it's generally been in the past couple of, uh, couple of decades. On top of that, China's contending with basically zero population growth uh, a pretty heavily indebted corporate sector uh, and a set of relatively inefficient state-owned enterprises. And those are all factors that could conceivably give us a worse outcome uh, than what's contained in our projections. On the other hand, uh, if the authorities were to resume the aggressive reform efforts that characterized the 2000s, we could see upside risk to our forecasts. Even in our base case, uh, by the end of this 15-year period, China will rival uh, the U.S. as the world's largest economy, uh, and certainly we expect local living standards uh, to increase significantly. Given that expectation for the economy, uh, we'd also expect Chinese financial markets to continue their own journey from the periphery uh, toward the center of the global investment landscape. Chinese equity and bond markets are already pretty large uh, by global standards, but they've got room to grow further alongside the economy. And maybe more importantly, we'd expect foreign participation uh, in those markets, which is currently quite low, uh, to increase significantly. Uh, foreigners, for example, currently hold just 3% uh, of the onshore equity market. Uh, so we would expect Chinese assets to form an increasing uh, portion of institutional portfolios uh, over the course of the next, uh, the next 10 to, to 15 years. 
We also think the onshore asset management industry is likely to continue developing uh, and that greater institutionalization of local markets, both with foreign participation and the development uh, of, the, of the onshore industry, uh, are likely to bring greater stability to Chinese equity prices, which currently uh, are among the world's most, uh, most volatile. Now, as we uh, consider how the equity market is going to evolve, uh, we also think we're likely to see significant changes in sector composition. Right now, financials are a dominant portion of the index, around 40%. The Chinese banking sector is very large and it's likely to, to remain so uh, relative to the size of the, of the economy. And so this is likely to continue to be a relatively bank-heavy market, uh, a little bit like Australia and Canada uh, among, the, uh, among the developed markets. Uh, but we would expect to see greater participation from consumer and services industries uh, in the equity index over, over time. They're currently underrepresented. And part of that reflects the fact that many of the well-known Chinese uh, technology and internet champions uh, are not actually listed onshore. Uh, so we're looking for a significant change uh, in that sector mix over, over time. Now, as we consider the overall atmosphere for emerging market financial assets, uh, and Tony's already picked up a little bit of that, of that story, uh, it's really that growth gap, uh, the relatively high growth that's on offer in China, India, and a handful of other major EM economies, along with starting valuations for EM financial assets that are relatively reasonable, uh, that, makes us, uh, that makes us upbeat uh, on the prospects for, uh, for EM financial market returns. To be sure, uh, as discussed, uh, the EM uh, growth numbers have been crawling lower in recent years, uh, as has the gap between EM and DM growth. Uh, if we look at the left-hand chart, we can see the absolute uh, growth numbers for EM and the path that they've taken in, in recent years. Uh, the lower chart on the right shows the difference uh, between EM and DM growth. So that's narrowed, uh, but it's still almost two and a half percentage points in real terms. And in a relatively low returning world, uh, we think that's quite, that's quite significant. Looking at a couple of the, the financial markets uh, specifically, uh, we talked already about EM equities, uh, which are likely to return a little bit more than 9%, about three percentage points more than what's on offer in the developed equity markets. Some of that story reflects a tailwind from currency, Chinese renminbi is a, is a part of that story, uh, given that we expect strong per capita GDP growth uh, to continue boosting competitiveness and therefore, therefore warranting uh, a stronger exchange rate over time. And that'll carry some of the other EM uh, currencies with it. And that's relevant at the index level uh, for, uh, for EM equities. Uh, EM equities will, will remain, uh, even as Chinese shares we think settle down a little bit, uh, will remain a relatively high volatility asset relative to, to DM. Uh, but even so, uh, the return increment means that on a sharp ratio basis, uh, they look just as good as, uh, if not a little bit better, uh, than developed equities. On the fixed income side, uh, we're looking for emerging markets external debt to return uh, about 5%, 5.1% to be, to be precise. In, in uh, uh, comparison with other uh, credit markets, uh, such as U.S. corporate credit, what you have in common with those uh, is the fact that the duration exposure is a drag, uh, so that number has come down uh, relative to, uh, to last year. Uh, on the other hand, the starting valuations compared with U.S. corporate credit uh, are significantly more favorable, and that's why the overall return number uh, for, uh, for EM debt uh, looks closer to that of U.S. high yield uh, than it does to U.S. investment grade, uh, even though the credit quality in EM uh, is roughly balanced between the two. I mentioned the, the Chinese renminbi. Uh, let me now broaden out that story to, to talk a little bit more about the overall FX assumptions uh, that are contained in, in this year's set of numbers. And really what that boils down to is an expectation of dollar depreciation. Since the big move up in 2014 and 2015, we've felt that the dollar is relatively expensive uh, by long-term standards, uh, and therefore we'd expect it to trend lower uh, over time. No telling exactly when that'll happen, and when it does, it may go farther than, than the equilibrium, uh, which is uh, the usual pattern in, in FX. Uh, but we are comfortable saying uh, that the dollar is likely to move generally lower uh, over the course of the, of the coming years. 
And that's really a, a, an across the board story. We actually don't see significant misvaluations among other currencies. Uh, and so we're looking for a generalized downturn in the dollar uh, to the tune of, of between one and two percentage points uh, against most of the other major global currencies. That complicates the safe haven story a little bit. Uh, we normally think about the dollar as providing some protection for portfolios during downturns. The fact that it's relatively expensive under current circumstances may impede it uh, from playing uh, that role to the, to the same degree that it has in the past. Other currencies like the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc uh, may serve as reasonable substitutes, uh, but those are unlikely to be major parts of most institutional portfolios. Uh, so this year, in the context of bond returns that now look quite low, we've been thinking a little bit more broadly about the role of safe havens in constructing portfolios and what other assets may start to come to the fore. Uh, and I'll ask Pokit Sharma to pick up the story from there. Sure. So uh, we looked at the construct of safe havens uh, closely this year. One of the big structural uh, tectonic shifts happening is the specter of uh, um, negative yields. And so we have around 25 trillion uh, plus of negative yields, 25% of the world's government bonds are negative yielding. That's a huge uh, challenge for portfolio construction going forward in, in terms of uh, the traditional ballast or foundation of invest of the 60-40 portfolios is not really generating uh, that, that yield. So that really looks uh, leads to what could be uh, the different sources of uh, that safe haven or ballast in the portfolio. Fixed income will continue to have a role, but active management, active currency overlays will be more important going forward. Gold is another type of safe haven asset, uh, although it do does not generate any income, but there's a lot of demand coming from uh, the decline of the dollar and also uh, behaviorally from the emerging markets. So uh, those traditional safe havens, there's also this uh, construct of additional uh, uh, alternative assets, uh, especially real estate and infrastructure assets, which could act, add to the toolbox of uh, that safe haven spectrum. Um, in particular, we focus uh, on core alternatives where there is high forecastability of income and cash flows, which really comes from um, high, highly occupied, high occupancy markets or long-term cash flows, long-term leases on essential assets. So those types of assets can fill an additional complementary role in a toolbox where uh, in a low growth, low inflation, a cyclical, uh, cyclically late cycle environment, the idea of adding uh, portfolio resiliency is more important than ever before. Now, having uh, said that, the real assets being uh, one of the survival toolkits in the safe haven toolbox, there are certain themes at play uh, in the real assets world, uh, which we have examined. On the next slide, um, the first, the first one, uh, the first one being this idea of uh, uh, the returns uh, in, in the real asset space, which are pretty much flat versus last year, uh, on the heels of really strong fundamentals. So not a lot of change. Uh, the biggest driver of change uh, has been the initial yields. So if you look at the numbers on U.S. core real estate, around 5.8 percent, looking out 10 to 15 years. Compare that to a stock bond mix of 5.4%, uh, so 60-40 at 5.4, equities at 5.6. That's a strong, uh, resilient return profile, but at the same time, 75% of that return is really coming from income, at the same, and it's coming at a lower volatility levels. So can, that can play a strong role in uh, investor portfolios. Uh, infrastructure has a similar construct. Um, the changes really are, again, from the yield profiles. Uh, so European ex, Europe ex-UK real estate has seen a lot of capital flows, slightly lower returns. Uh, we have seen a correction in the UK market, so slightly higher yields, uh, uh, starting yields in the UK real estate space. Um, infrastructure uh, flat versus last year, uh, but there's an increasing and rising demand uh, for infrastructure in investor portfolios uh, due to the resiliency of, of cash yield it offers. Uh, we, uh, while real estate returns may look uh, rich in the European ex-UK space, uh, we, we, we look at the spreads versus triple uh, B bonds. They are wide, as wide as they ever have uh, they have been. So with those themes in mind that there's a lot of, uh, the, the returns are pretty much similar, 
uh, slightly lower growth, lower cost of leverage adding and offsetting the lower growth, uh, we see certain secular trends which will impact the real estate real asset space over the next 10 to 15 years. So first one uh, being technology, which, we, uh, which is common across alternatives. So what we are seeing is a shift uh, really in the real estate space from, um, from retail uh, to industrial. And that's really impacted by consumers. And consumers is actually a strong point uh, in the LTCMAs. So what's, what's, how it's impacting is how the consumers are really buying. Uh, are they, they're buying online and they're buying, uh, they want just-in-time deliveries. That really is a strong tailwind for industrial real estate. While not all is lost in the retail space, uh, non-commoditized grocery-anchored retail, luxury goods will continue to be bought uh, and that will still provide a strong, uh, resilient rent growth in that space. Infrastructure is also impacted by technology in that uh, the cost curve of producing renewable energy has radically declined over the last 10 years, one-tenth the cost of uh, producing solar. Uh, there is also this uh, impetus of storing renewable energy better, so technology is impacting that space. The cost of, uh, of, of transactions is declining. So that sort of is a specter in which it's impacting uh, the, the, the real asset space. The other is there are a lot of new entrants which will come in the, uh, the real asset space moving forward. New entrants uh, in the form of newer sectors. Uh, while newer sectors have come in the REIT space over the last 10, 15 years, so uh, self-storage, healthcare, uh, cold storage, those kinds of sectors will become, become mainstream in the private space as well going forward. Newer countries, a more globalization of real estate, addition of uh, uh, countries in, Europe, in Asia Pacific regions, Japan, Australia, even China over the next 10, 15 years, especially the gateway cities. And finally, the other last new entrant uh, uh, would be segments which did not have institutional ownership uh, in the past, such as leasing type of assets, which really came out of uh, from the bank balance sheets into the private realm, will become a part of the institutional landscape uh, going forward. There's also the third trend of democratization of uh, real assets in that there'll be new entrants in the form of individuals owning more, while private real assets have traditionally be owned by institutions and ultra high net worth individuals. There's this, uh, this wave of capital which will uh, be accretive to the exit deals going forward. And then finally, ESG is more is very ingrained in the real asset space. Uh, it's foundational to the asset class itself. So with those themes in mind, uh, one thing uh, I want to highlight is uh, taking a step back is this change uh, of outlook uh, from a 10 to, 15 year, 10 to 15 years perspective is this move from the financial economy to the real economy or move from financial assets to real assets, which is highlighted on this simple visual where the two important objectives which our clients are looking to achieve are certainty, uh, shown here by income, so which is 70 to 80% of the return spectrum in the real asset space, and diversification versus traditional assets. So those two objectives are maximized uh, at the real assets level uh, for with core real estate and infrastructure in particular. So from a portfolio construction perspective, as we look to retool the 60-40 portfolio, look to add uh, real assets as a, new, uh, a different kind of a safe haven instrument, they can play a role as uh, for risk for, for de-risking, uh, where they could be a substitute uh, for, uh, for, for, for equities complement to fixed income, and also for return enhancement uh, in the opposite manner. So we see uh, mainstreaming of this asset class in the future. And finally, uh, there are four big themes bringing it all together in the alternative space which are at play today. The first one is that uh, if you look at the assumptions, alternatives are more efficient than the public markets in general across the efficient frontier. Uh, manager selection is of paramount importance in the alternative space, especially in the financial alternative space, uh, which tend to exhibit higher dispersion. Private equity, as Tony highlighted, is rising uh, on, the, on the tailwind of beta, whereas uh, the alpha has, uh, while there is more uh, uh, 
capital uh, and dry capital and dry powder there is also the there is this home of innovation and opening of new markets which make the alpha numbers more stable over time and finally we talked about real assets as a source of income which is gaining more and more traction going forward that i'll pass it on to john to talk about risk-adjusted returns moving forward. That's great. Thanks, Paul Kip. Well, in just a moment, we'll uh, we'll open up to Q&A, and I'd remind uh, any uh, all of you who've joined us that you can ask questions of the panel here through your browser. But I think the overarching message is that we've seen something of a collapsing together in terms of risk-adjusted returns for a dollar-based investor. You can see that equity markets are a little bit better. Bond markets, depending on the duration, somewhere between a little bit worse and a good deal worse. What's quite interesting, I think, is that if you actually look at it in an international context, the US is rather catching down to where international peers are. Those of you looking at the bond sharp ratios in US dollars should perhaps spare a thought for your colleagues over the water who for some time now been facing very low sharp ratios in the fixed income component of their portfolio. When you're starting from very low yields, what this exercise does is demonstrate the challenges we face, not only from the cyclical position we're in as long-term investors, but also the monetary policy outcomes that have led us to a world of extremely low interest rates. It doesn't mean that there's not ample opportunity out there, of course, because we are in a relatively low inflation world. And what that means is if we look at the expected returns, although they're low in nominal terms, in real terms, they're rather a little bit better. But crucially, there are still risk premia to be harvested. And after all, that's what we're looking to do. The challenge comes, of course, in constructing a balanced and robust portfolio to do that, recognizing, of course, that while bonds will probably do a good job over short-run short cyclical bumps in the road, over the long term, it's very difficult to expect them to produce the income in the portfolio they have over the last 30 years. And so that really leads us back to reminding what our speakers today have said. Firstly, growth expectations are relatively low. Monetary policy is reaching a point where it is becoming difficult to see how it adds further stimulus. Where does that lead us in the policy toolkit? Rates do look set to be low and bond returns low, but there are bright spots across equities. There's upside risk from productivity, from technology, from the super cycle that's happening there, you can capture that in public equity, but even better in private equity, where alpha trends are somewhat stable. China generally looks like a sleeping giant when it comes to its equity and bond markets. And seeing those open up as China continues to grow, albeit at a slower pace, is something investors perhaps should be looking at as an allocation over the next 10 to 15 years. And of course, in a world of rates being extremely low, having to rethink safe havens and rethink those trade-offs that we make when we build safety and robustness into portfolios, real assets are suddenly becoming a much more interesting source of long-term cash flow. And overall, we're looking to reconfigure that whole 60-40 toolkit and rethink how we can best harvest those returns over the longer term. So with that in mind, uh, please do continue to come through with your questions. We have a few coming through already. And uh, what I'd like to do is just uh, turn it over to the panel. And the first one I'm going to pick up actually is going back to David, because it's a, a key point about the failure of monetary stimulus. Um, the, the, if monetary stimulus has indeed reached a point where it's no longer stimulative, what next? Well, I, I think you can, uh, part of the answer here is, uh, is fiscal stimulus, perhaps when the economy needs it. But I, I guess the first thing I would say is, I think you know, part of the dilemma we have is that monetary and fiscal authorities think they always have to save the economy and uh, create aggregate demand. In fact, it used to be the case that the economy would have these V-shaped recessions, things would slow down, and then things would pick up. I mean, after all, you know, every day, uh, more people wake up, they want to buy more stuff, they want to, you know, work more hours and want to get ahead. The economy should have some natural resilience anyway. So I think you have to reserve stimulus for periods when the economy actually needs it. But I do think that in the next, uh, in, in recovering from the next recession, whenever that occurs, we are likely to see more fiscal stimulus. Uh, that comes with its own threat, because in the long run, uh, I two fronts. One, uh, budgets really aren't in a good position to, to manage that, um, but also, Monetary stimulus seems to sort of sleep, uh, make the economy sleepier. 
fiscal stimulus, particularly if it's directed at lower income individuals or directed at big public spending, that could actually heat up aggregate demand and heat up inflation. So you could actually finally reawaken that, 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 that inflation dragon. So I think there's some risks there. I hope that when we think about fiscal stimulus going forward, we think thoughtfully about how do you leverage the private sector into doing things. You know, the real the problem with the recession is that people want to wait and see. The answer to recession is to try to get people to do it now. And so simple fiscal solutions which help accelerate economic activity without burdening us with too much um, debt and without um, you know, opening the, you know, uh, unleashing the, the the inflation genie. I think that that's really the challenge, and that will be one of the challenges for policymakers over the next decade. And there's an interesting a follow-on question from there, and I'm going to stay with you, David, before we, we go to the broader panel. Um, someone's picked up a quote, and thank you for whoever sent this in for actually for for, for thoroughly reading the, uh, the, the 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 book. Um, they've they've quoted, but in the days of simply simply insulating exposure to risky assets with allocation to bonds are over. And they're asking, does this imply that core bonds and treasuries won't rally in the next downturn? So maybe that's uh, your perspective on that and perhaps uh, pull it off. Yeah, I'd love to know what, what, what other people think. think. No, we, we do think that there will be some, uh, there will be the, the usual insurance balance. I mean, we still have, you know, US 10-year treasury yields at 185 this morning. Mm -hmm. Could we easily, could we see a situation where we're down to 85 basis points if we had a recession? Absolutely. And we've seen negative yields in, in Europe. We could absolutely see that below, you know, below 1%. We could even see negative yields. There is a limit to it, though, um, because we do think that when you once, you know, it's hard to envision long-term bonds saying, you know, staying below, say, negative 1% or, or even negative 50 basis points for, for long. So, so we're almost out of insurance, but there will be that kicker. But the problem is you're also paying more for that insurance. And so it's a much more expensive insurance policy because while you hold it, you're not getting a small positive real return. You're getting a small negative real return. And that's really one of the reasons why we have to rethink portfolios uh, at this time. And that, uh, I have to say, Kodak, that in, it's a short term, uh, you know, while there are, there are pressures, that, that actually leads to a, even more emphasis on um, figuring out what are the sectors to invest in in that space, or how active management plays a bigger role today in the fixed income space than, uh, you know, when, when wheels are more and more challenged. Yeah, because the, the I mean, the fixed, how do we get here in terms of fixed income? Really, the two problems. One is investors after, you know, the two massive sell-offs and equities in the 2000s, investors have piled into bonds, but also um, central banks are, uh, have increased the problem through through uh, monetary stimulus, pushing those low, low yields down. And that's why particularly things like, as, as Bouquet was talking about, in terms of core real estate, that, that is another way of getting income, which has maybe not been as, as favored, but it's, it's, there's actually a lot of long-term opportunity in things that people you know, are, are not so attracted to right now. Indeed. So, so sort of recognizing that there's, you know, that there's an income job and a safety job, and they may not necessarily be being done by the same piece of your Absolutely. toolkit anymore. So, um, you know, staying with actually what is a, obviously a very low rate economy is a question that's come in asking about Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps with the backdrop of some of uh, David and Pulkit's comments, uh, Tony, um, what do you believe would be the catalyst for a turnaround in European equities? I, I think David Kelly, uh, Dr. Kelly's hit the nail on the head and the change in monetary policy might be the catalyst for a more robust Europe generally. And that would focus on the outlook for banks. Um, we think most of the negative point of view on banks is fully discounted with the sector selling at a 50% discount to book value. Uh, but for the most part, it would be a change in monetary policy, uh, less negative rates, if not even positive rates, that certainly could get the profitability of the banks up. And that's certainly an important component of the European index overall. So again, if there's going to be a prime concern, it's going to be the banks. But the, the antidote to that is a change in monetary policy. But for the stocks, they already fully reflect, in our opinion, the fairly negative dire outlook for interest rates, at least over the short term. And could I just add, John, that, that when we think about the international equity markets, including Europe, the relatively high dividend yield is a strong argument in their favor over the, over the long term. Uh, so you get that kicker on top of the, the, the price return, uh, which this year, given the, uh, the FX assumptions, uh, means that there's a couple of tailwinds, valuations, uh, higher dividend yields, uh, and the, the currency factor that, that at some point over the long term uh, should help that, that international story. 
Yeah, and I think uh, you know uh, I completely agree with you, Tony, that that the uh, that financials are key to uh, sort of key to a recovery in European equity markets. But more broadly, when you look at markets, uh, equity markets outside the United States, the trade issue is very important uh, because we've seen this increase, you know, this increased trade tension around the, uh, the the world. It may be that the high tide of trade tension is now behind us, which would be a, a positive thing. Uh, but certainly, getting past the 2020 U.S. election, uh, perhaps. After that, we will have more clarity on trade policy because I think everybody in, uh, on this panel, and I think most investors realize that in the end, lower tariffs are better, not higher tariffs. So um, moving towards trade solutions rather than uh, trade tensions, I think that would be a catalyst in, in terms of both bringing down the dollar and improving emerging markets and other equity markets around the world. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up the trade discussion, actually, oddly enough, because um, you know, questions coming, which is which is perhaps more of a philosophical question, and maybe I throw this out to Michael to begin, then uh, the, the broader panel. What's your best estimate of when China will transition from being an emerging market to a developed market economy? And what effect would that have on both the EM and the DM aggregate outlooks? Well, I think there's a couple of, of uh, angles to that story, John, one of which is, is thinking about high income status, uh, which on, on our numbers is about 10 to 12 years uh, from now. Uh, when you think about China moving away from the, the, the EM levels of, of income toward uh, U.S., Europe, and, and Japan. Uh, so if our forecasts are correct, we're you know, perhaps no more than a decade away uh, from, that, uh, uh, from that story. Uh, when we think about the, the equity market and the way that it works, uh, there's where you're going to need to see that increase in institutionalization of the market uh, in order to, to think of it as a separate allocation uh, for institutional investors. Uh, right now, so much of that market is held by local retail investors, uh, and that just, uh, that just lends a, a tremendous degree of, of volatility uh, to, the, to the market, and that, I think, holds it back uh, from, uh, from, from DM status. And so it's partly about the economic transition uh, and partly about the, the structure of the, of the equity market. Um, well then, you know, something else. Just just thinking in terms of international flows. There's a question that's again a little bit more philosophical here, but perhaps well worth uh, well worth addressing. Um, we seem to uh, the, the the questioner says we seem to have an, a certainty that the rates around the globe in Europe, in Japan, etc., are going to hold down U.S. dollar interest rates, and certainly correlations over the past 10 years have suggested that there has been a globalization of long ends. Uh, but the, the question is asking, you know, if we had to argue to the contrary, you know, how would that work? And is there a case that we could see uh, the US rates beginning to rise outside of the uh, constraints of the, of the wider global economy? And what would that mean for US consumers? Well, I think that's, I think that's quite that is possible. I mean, after all, the difference that we see in U.S. rates and say European rates right now is, to some extent, the result of fiscal stimulus put into the U.S. in 2018, which was not put in mm. um, in in Europe. I think you know there, there are two ways you can look at it. I, there's no doubt about the interconnectedness of these these markets. But do you look at the rest of the world as an anchor holding U.S. rates down, or do you look at the U.S. as a balloon that can push global rates up? Mm. Um, I, you could, if you have basically different um, fiscal policies, uh, I think you will get this continuation of a, a difference in rates. But if you, if for example, you know, we're waiting for <clears throat> some German fiscal stimulus, if they took that very seriously, um, then you could see a pickup in in uh, rates in Europe. Um, and then more broadly, you know, the whole thing about the key about fiscal stimulus is if you give money to people who will spend it, you will, uh, particularly when you've got very low unemployment as you have in, in Japan, and even in some parts of Europe, you've got low unemployment now. In those kinds of environments, if, if you, you, you can promote more demand for goods and services, um, if you do that, you get more inflation. If you get more inflation, you get higher interest rates. So it is, it is possible to see that convergence if you see more fiscal stimulus in, in, in those regions. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's stay, let's stay with the notion of a, of, a, of a lower interest rate world for now, because, of course, we've seen a major capital appreciation in 2019 on, on REITs, given the low interest rate backdrop. Um, so as we think forward, Paul Kitt, uh, we've got a question in asking what's the outlook for the REIT space and how does that relate to core real estate as well? 
Yes, and then in the building blocks we use, uh, we actually feed the read returns are, are have a link to the private space. So there's a public-private link. Uh, with the appreciation in the US read space, we have uh, an adjustment, uh, amortization, uh, or, or this premium, uh, so premium to uh, so NAV adjustment for US REITs going forward. So slightly lower, lower numbers for the US REIT space. Um, the other trends really follow the private markets, which is uh, slightly lower uh, for the European ex-UK space, higher for uh, UK uh, REITs uh, versus last year, slightly higher uh, in the Asia-Pacific uh, REIT space. Uh, is where our view uh, there is. And also the big delineation between the public and private real estate space is the sector mix, uh, which is really different. Um, so while the private space is dominated with office, industrial, retail, multifamily, traditional sectors, the REIT space uh, over the last 15 years uh, had 85% of the same sectors, but now that number is around 50%. So 50% of REIT exposure is to these non non-perceived to be core sectors, which have usually higher embedded growth. So that's a tailwind. Uh, and then the leverage levels are usually higher for REITs, but on balance for global REITs, the numbers are flat uh, versus last year. Got you. Okay, and we've had a, as, as you've been talking about the, the REITs outlook, we've had another question coming, of course, on uh, the rates space. So from REITs to rates again, um, bear with us. Uh, the, uh, the question here being more about term premium, and of course, um, we have seen the situation where you know, the, the, the Fed's activity, along with other central banks, you know, building out their balance sheet, has compressed global term risk premium. How much have we factored that in to our thinking about rates over the longer haul uh, compared to the world we had pre-crisis with a much, much more slender central bank balance sheet? Well, let, let me, I think Michael might have uh, some some thoughts on this too. But um, yeah, I mean that's certainly part of the world that we're in right now. We've got uh, we've got um, central banks involved in QE in a way that there's you know since World War II, from World War II up until the, the global financial crisis, central banks really were not that involved with the long end of the bond market. Now they're heavily involved, and even with the 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 Fed's latest uh, you know pivot to to increase short-term bonds, you could argue they're still. Uh, or short-term treasury bills are still basically impacting the long end of the market more than they have in the past. So that, that's part of the story. I think there's also this great hunt for yield. All you know, a lot of individual investors have been pouring money into fixed income. They will try and pick up yield wherever they can. And one way you do that is you push out, push the boat out in terms of taking that yield. So that that, that squashed down those premia. And I think we do expect some recovery of those premia uh, over time. But uh, Michael, what what do you think of it? So I think that we'd already seen before the QE era started, we'd already seen a decline in, mm -hmm. in term premia uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. And we'd relate that primarily to the drop in uncertainty about inflation. Yeah. So as inflation has come down over the last few decades and has become significantly less volatile, uh, we associate that with the with the decline in, in term premium. And if you, if you take our, our forecast seriously, uh, we're not going to see a significant increase in inflation uncertainty yeah. uh, over time. So I think even abstracting from the central bank story, uh, you'd expect curves to be flatter uh, yeah. on, on an ongoing basis than they, than they were in the past. Yeah. And I think we've got time for, for one last question. And uh, I, I see Tony's been waiting very patiently there. So the one that's come in, which I think is quite an interesting one, it relates China, of course. It's really asking about the regional structure of private equity. We're seeing returns being well above public markets. Um, you know, relatively stable alpha trends, but is the complexion of them changing under the surface? How much of this is about the outlook for the United States um, versus the outlook for a you know, entrepreneurship and uh, you know, development of new technologies around the globe? Yeah, interesting question. So over time, of course, uh, it, the private equity business was overwhelmingly a U.S. mid-cap business, and today we uh, model our numbers on 55% U.S. investable uh, and 45% the rest of the world, of which it's a little bit more oriented toward Europe outside the U.S. But I actually don't think that those numbers will change much over the next six, seven, eight, nine years or so, because the opportunity set, as we've expressed in the e-commerce paper, is growing and growing quite quickly. Composition might change a little bit more from traditional LBO to growth uh, and maybe VC, uh, but I think the U.S. still has a, is a, still a very attractive place to invest from a private equity point of view. On the other side of the coin, when you have an economy like India growing at 7% real terms, 
the Chinese economy really being quite the innovator, particularly on the technology and the mobile technology space, uh, those should dominate uh, increasingly in terms of the money that goes into the emerging markets. But that being said, John, with something like $4 trillion of money to be spent, uh, my guess is you're going to seek out every nook and cranny. Uh, and one interesting little tidbit is that Japan has been mentioned increasingly as a, an attractive place for private equity, and that's because returns are low, governance scores generally are low, and so the opportunity is quite, quite large in Japan, and it, apparently the top end of the corporate uh, spectrum in Japan is open to change and open to these governance uh, changes. So there's going to be more activism and there's going to be more private equity in Japan. Okay, very good. Well, thank you, gentlemen. So my thanks to Pulkit, to Michael, to Tony and to David. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, you'll see the links to the website on the screen now, and we would certainly encourage further questions. If you'd like to make contact with any of the long-term capital market assumptions team, please uh, contact your JP Morgan representative and we'd be delighted to continue the conversation. With that, uh, I will uh, pass it back over to our operator to close out the call. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the JP Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, 
which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients, only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514383280, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019 J.P. Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved.